people automatically count the negatives mm. in the new and foreign thing, and they overstate the positives where they are. What's up, tribe? Welcome back to the podcast that brings you closer to the world's biggest risk takers and enemies of the status quo. This podcast is for people who want to take the plunge in life but need a little nudge. I'm your host, Coach Darren K. Roberts, and I went from Harvard Law to the NFL by the grace of God and good old-fashioned grit. That voice you heard before the tribe beat dropped was Rory Verrett, career whisperer, former vice president of talent management and public affairs for the NFL, and current managing partner at Protégé Search. Listen, this man is a pivot artist, and let's get ready to tune in to the in-depth convo with Rory Verrett. Well, Rory, welcome to the tribe. Man, we're glad to have you join us. Happy to be here. Good deal. Now, let me ask you this. Let's say I go back in time, pull you out of your 11th grade English class, and mm. you went to St. Augs. Purple Knights. Purple Knights all the way from Nolens. And I ask you, Rory, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would the answer have been? The first black governor of Louisiana. Wow. Can you remember like when you first started thinking that that was where you wanted to land? Absolutely. I've been in student government my whole life. I'm talking about vice president of the Arbor Club in second grade. Second grade? As and, a, what? Hey, man, I wasn't even president. I was vice president. And all <laughs> we did was Earth Day. But apparently you needed a vice president in case the president was incapacitated for Earth Day to do the, uh, the hard work. So I've been in student government my whole life. I was in Boyd State at Louisiana, which was a, an incredible experience. I won a nine-way campaign to be attorney general and uh, thought to myself, hey, if I can do that, I mean, because that's, that's like a real deal. That's all the student body presidents and student leaders from all over the state. There's a bias against big city New Orleans. And I was able to do some razzle-dazzle and politicking and win. And so at 17, you know, I'm thinking I could do this on a bigger stage. And that was my dream probably until I was 30 years old. Wow. The decision to go to Howard University, the nation's capital. What were you thinking yes, graduating? What were your thoughts kind of coming out of high school in terms of next steps? Well, you never know how college is going to turn out, right? You think you're going to do well, but I had a phenomenal experience at Howard. I kind of hit my groove on all cylinders. I figured out when I was in high school, once I get math and science off the table, I'm going to be a bad dude. And so <laughs> once I got that after freshman year, the math and science, and all I had was English as my major and poli-sci as my minor, well, the A's start coming in in a way that they didn't come in in, in high school um, in terms of my overall GPA. I got active in student government, uh, was active as a, as a policy wonk in the nation's capital. And so I thought, you know, maybe I'll go into politics eventually, but I'm definitely going to play a role in public policy. And when that big fat packet from Harvard Law School came in, well, I thought, okay, I'll go to Harvard Law for, for three years, and then I'll cut my teeth as an attorney, but eventually I'm going to get into politics. Hmm. First day you walk on the campus, I'm going to fast forward through undergrad Let's get to law school. The first day you walk onto the campus of Harvard Law School, Cambridge, Mass., what were your thoughts? What was going through your head? You know, it's interesting that you asked that question because I just came from the 
tribute that the law school did to Professor Charles Ogletree. And I sent in a, a video uh, thanking him for his service and his mentorship. And one thing I mentioned was I had gone to all black, all boys, St. Aug. I had gone to 95% black Howard University. So this was my first time in a competitive environment where it was majority white. So it might as well have been Mars for me. I didn't know what to expect. It was cold. There were, it was 10% black. And so there was a little bit of a, I won't say intimidation factor, but there was just an unknown factor there of socially, how would I adapt? Academically, how would I adapt? Would the professors be as warm and nurturing as they had been at Howard and St. Aug? Hmm. And when I walked on campus, I went into the Balsa orientation, which was a separate orientation that uh, Professors Ogletree and uh, Randy Kennedy and David Wilkins did that basically was like a tough love boot camp. And so I felt like I was joining this family. And uh, I say this much to the chagrin of my Howard alumni, that the Black Harvard Law Alumni Network uh, created just as warm, just as nurturing, just as a, much of a family environment as Howard did. And that's a tall order. You know, and for those of you out there, BALSA stands for Black Law Students Association. That's right. I was a member at Harvard Law from 04 to 07. And the names that Rory just mentioned, Charles Ogletree, David Wilkins, Randall Kennedy. I mean, those are some men who went beyond the confines of the classroom to really make sure that black students got on the right foot. We're getting mentored throughout the three years that can be a grind in Cambridge, Mass. And then what I love about him, and for me, David Wilkins has been my lifelong mentor. You know, here's a guy who's, they're all busy. Obviously, they're all, um, they have a, a lot of responsibilities, but they always make time for those former students to help steer them in the right direction. For people in the tribe who are, there are a lot of folks in the tribe who are considering a move to a place that's going to be foreign, you know, different from anything they've experienced. They may feel like they're in tall cotton to use a little term from the South. (laughs) What can you, how can you sort of coach them up on moving into the yes column and taking the plunge and taking that risk? It's a great question. That's a great question. And I would say, contrary to what you might think about going to Harvard Law School and going to this sort of separate black orientation and being a part of BALSA, it gave me the social confidence to be a part of the larger community. I was a class marshal. I was elected by that 90%, 80% white student body to be there, essentially the, the, you know, one of the class officers for the third year class because I felt like I had a base. And uh, I was talking with someone on, on my podcast about, we have a series about being an expat. And one of the themes we're hearing is, Find a way to get socially connected. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be your best friends move with you or you know that you've got a, a fraternity brother or, or a sorority sister at this company, but it could be one or two people that can socially ground you, a mentor that can give you a place to ask the awkward questions or show you around the venue or the city or the company. Just one or two people can give you the social confidence to venture out and make friends and relationships and and professional connections that over the long term provide that stickiness to allow you to stick and stay in these institutions. Hmm. Tell us this, Rory. I mean, you 
you know, for, for those of you out here, you know, Roy's my, my coach, mentor, I always say, you know, I'm expecting an invoice at any moment to pop into my inbox from Rory because, you know, the, the tally keeps growing in terms of advice that he's given to me for free, I think. But uh, I obviously <laughs> owe you tens of thousands of dollars. Where do you think people get it wrong when they're considering the move? Like what's what's some bad mm-hmm. advice that you think people are hearing as they're walking themselves through this potential transition? Well, what happens is people automatically count the negatives in the new and foreign thing, and they overstate the positives where they are. Um, I had a friend who I have a friend who's in the foreign service, and she said, a lot of my girlfriends were telling me, if you go in the foreign service, boy, it's going to really compromise your social life. You're going to be moving around every two years. How are you going to find you know, someone to date and find a husband? And she said, well, I'm having that challenge right now in D.C., <laughs> So, you know, I'm not going to lose anything by by going abroad. So sometimes we create too much negativity into the unknown and capture too much of the positivity where you are. My simple rule is if you are happy with what you're doing, then stay. If you think you can be happier, then move. I have found that in my own career, when I've made these pivots, I have very rarely regretted them. They've either provided me a profound lesson in what not to do when it doesn't work out, or they put me on a path which allows me to get much closer to my dreams, much closer to what really activates and inspires me in my career and life. And I never would have known that. I never would have known that uh, had I not just entered into the unknown. And the other thing I'll say, the secondly, is you have to lean into your own fear. Hmm. You have to make fear something that is not the reason you don't do something, but it's the very reason you should do something because that's your unconscious. That's your, your subconscious. That's, that's a lot of intangible aspects bundled together, creating that pit in your stomach, that frog in your throat that says, don't do this. And sometimes we mistake that as the, the, the fight or flight instinct, which says, therefore I should avoid it. But what it really sometimes is telling you is that there's a lot at stake. Mm. And when you lean to that fear and you get over it, you find on the other side of it is the fulfillment and the joy that you can actually find at work. It's one of the things I always talk to people about their careers is that you can find joy at work. Everybody ain't walking in work on Monday morning mad about life. Some people are doing a George <laughs> Jefferson strut into work on Monday. Okay, and you want to be one of those people, particularly if you're extraordinarily talented and you know you have a special gift to share with the world. Lean into that fear, realistically capture those positives and those negatives in the before and after decision and just go for it, man. So as as I'm listening to the gospel, according to Roy Verrett, (laughs) what I'm hearing is that really making a pivot, it's a win win situation, because at the, the worst case scenario is you get a set of best practices you get you got to refine that list of really the things that are your non-negotiables i mean you can't come out of that pivot at a net loss no And, and, and the other thing that people underestimate is their own resilience in the face of failure so i've taken a pivot to being a politician to being an entrepreneur 
to taking a, a path toward a professional service and function I'd never heard of, executive recruiting, which is what I do now. I went into corporate as a, as a league executive at the NFL, which is where we cross paths. And so when you go through that much change, what you develop is this capacity that you drop me in the Amazon forest with a knife and, you know, one day's worth of clothes, I'm going to come back with, you know, a full tent and a meal for the rest of the month I'm there. There's a resilience and a resourcefulness you develop because over and over again, you are developing, you're activating this muscle of how to survive with less than perfect information, being in a moment of ambiguity in your career, bridging steep learning curves, building relationships kind of on the fly. And you do that over and over again. It gives you a, just a different level of confidence. I mean, my confidence before 30 was primarily, if you give me a set of rules, I will follow them to the T. I will outwork everybody else in this scenario, and I will eventually wind up a winner. I've added to that portfolio, if you don't give me the rules, if it's completely opaque and you drop me into that scenario, I am still going to become a victor because I've got the work ethic and now I've got that resilience and that resourcefulness to say, I will figure it out. And most of us don't give ourselves credit for our ability to simply figure it out. Well, here's a theory that I have, and, and, and feel free, because I know you will, to tell me that I'm, I'm wrong. But I think we have too many friends. I, I, I think mm. that there are, and I always tell people, reduce your circle to a triangle. And, wow. uh, you know, we, we, we are in an age where it's about the contacts, you know, the number of profiles you can accumulate on LinkedIn and the friends getting the 5,000 on your personal Facebook page. And <laughs> we're letting people give us advice. And here's what kills me, Rory. A lot of these people are in the same place they were a decade ago, mm. but they know where you should be going and how you should get there. Oh, that, that, that's advice I should take because I have, that's a personal uh, challenge that I have. And that is this idea of, frankly, you know, cutting people off or reducing your interaction with negative people. I find that very difficult to do. I'm very loyal to friends and I just find it difficult. You know, you can't, that buddy you knew in high school that, Remember that time we went fishing and the priest <laughs> fell in the water from the boat? You know, th- 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 there is some uh, uh, durability to having that nostalgia and those relationships. But, but sometimes, you know, your, your career takes a path, your life takes a path. People don't share the same values. And you're still holding on to a set of proxy values that are not really current with your life right now. And so you have to do a little bit of an audit. I, I find it hard to do. I actually agree with you. But I, I find that in practice. Um, sort of hard to do. It, it is. And I think that, you know, having five kids on my end has really, <laughs> I, it, yeah. it has forced me to dissect every 60 second interval and mm. just say, okay, now listen, this is an either or situation. Is, is, the, is the opportunity cost worth it for me to spend my time with this person at this event, um, you know, in this setting, Versus being at home. And so it's 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 a new calculus that I didn't have at 27 when I was, a you know, a guy in a 2002 Tahoe <laughs> rolling down the highway with with no responsibilities. Now, listen, now, East Coast folks would say that you have tri-sector competence. I mean, you've been in every branch 
every part of the economy from Capitol Hill to the private sector and the public sector. I want to kind of zoom in because you and I met while you were at the NFL. And Mm -hmm. as vice president and talent management and public affairs of the NFL, you had the chance to see a lot of people come through with golden resumes and, and, um, you know, big time dreams. And are there some lessons learned from that experience, kind of seeing talent flow through the national football league that you could give to the tribe to make them sort of think about their individual skill sets? Yes. I would say, imagine yourself in an orchestra or imagine yourself as the chef of a restaurant. What is your specialty? You can't play trumpet and bassoon, and you can't be a Cajun restaurant and a Mexican restaurant. So find what you do extraordinarily well and hone that gift as much as you can. Focus on your strength. Now, some people would say that contrary advice that you should focus on your weaknesses. You should eliminate your weaknesses, which could be catastrophic if you're always late, if you, you know, always telling people off at work, if you can't manage money well, if you, you know, if there are things that are derailers, you should minimize those. Once you, once you get to be a whole adult, mature professional, then it's give yourself as many looks or opportunities to develop your skill set. It makes you indispensable in the workplace. You will, you can get the, the generalist sensibilities and experience as you get to senior management, but whether it's a crisis, a new project, a merger acquisition, any moment in, in, the, in the history or the season of the enterprise, the person that is exceptional in one thing, that knows what their fastball pitch is or their best dish or, or their greatest instrument, uh, if you get to extraordinary levels of achievement with that, I find those people tend to have durability in their careers. They tend to add the most value to the enterprise when they're there. Um, and they have a confidence that's not fake. It's real. It's born of, I know what I can do and I am expert at this. This is what Malcolm Gladwell, one of your favorite authors, talks about the 10,000 hours of practice. You yes. got to put that in to get that expertise level. Yes, yes. I want you to talk about reinvention. It seems to me, and this is this is from, hey, I'm just an old Texas boy looking from afar. All right, <laughs> With so two degrees, right? <laughs> I'm just I'm just looking up, and it seems to me like you talk about your best dish and your fastball. I mean, you've really found your your fastball now. You have what I what it, what it looks to me to be a complementary portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, the podcast protege podcast feeds into protege search and you're the managing partner. Mm-hmm. And talk about how you first had the courage to say, I'm going to get off the corporate train. I'm going to do this entrepreneurship thing. And then secondly, how you built that portfolio to really feed into itself. Well, I appreciate that compliment. I think you're right. Um, it, it came through a lot of introspection. I think introspection is the thing we don't do enough of. We have to be selfish and self-centered enough to focus and ask ourselves, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Is it bringing me joy? Is it bringing me fulfillment? Am I closer to my calling? So those two pieces, those two brackets to my professional career, that I host a podcast that is you know, a media entity, it's a content creation vehicle and platform, 
And then I also do a traditional search firm where I recruit senior executives for a company. One of them, the search piece, is an acquired skill set that I developed in my career fairly early on. I wasn't trained as it, but I got into it five, about 10 years into my career. And I'm, you know, I, people would say I'm really good at it, but it, that's the skill set. The podcast piece, which is indispensable from the search piece, is the performance aspect that I've always wanted to have in my career that I didn't. I mean, when I was in high school, you asked me about my junior year. If you take me to what I, was, what I want to do in sophomore year, I was a drama and high school speech nerd. And what do drama students think they want to do when they are 16 years old? They want to go to acting school. They want to go to Juilliard. They want to, they want to be on Broadway. And for a period of my life, because I was really good at it, I was, you know, getting the college applications and will you apply? We like your profile from these great speech and drama programs. So in some ways, I got really far away from that, from I want to be an actor and I have the skills to do it to, well, I'll be a public speaker, to I'll be a lawyer. And, and so now what I've built is this platform, which allows me to do what I am professionally competent at doing, which is this expertise in executive recruiting, and my deepest passion, which is this performance aspect of my career in the podcast and doing live shows and doing a lot of public speeches and keynotes. That is also what brings me joy. So I got all parts of my heart, my mind, and my soul at play with this. Um, but it took a lot of introspection. It took trusting the process where I'm in these jobs. I was in executive search thinking to myself, what the heck are you doing in executive search? You have a Harvard law degree. You're supposed to be some kind of judge or politician <laughs> and you're here and you're a corporate headhunter, but I loved it and I was good at it and I did not enjoy the practice of law. And so, you know, my advice to people is to dig deep and look in the mirror every morning and don't lie to yourself. Mm. Um, you know, don't lie to yourself about what you really want to do and try to crowd out the noise of people saying, that's not what you should be doing. You're crazy. If I were you and your degree, I would be doing this. Nothing makes my soul sing more than speaking to a group of people in an impactful manner. Nothing. It, 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 that has been the case my entire life. And so I can't have a career where I don't have that in play. I'm not going to enjoy it as much. So the podcast actually came first. I was in a standard issue public affairs job partner at this firm, and I started the podcast on the side as like a fun project, and I started getting, ironically, client engagements from this side hustle, if you will. It wasn't even there to make money. It was just like a fun thing to do because I was at the NFL, and I spoke a lot about careers, and I said, I want to keep that going. I'm going to build a platform myself, and I'll just start this career podcast. And, and so the, the, the big lesson from that is you don't have to even figure out how to make money from it. The money will actually come. That is not the hard part. The hard part is leaning into the fear, stepping into that great unknown, and making that jump. Not knowing if your parachute is going to open, not knowing if you're going to land in the net, and just making it happen. And you'll find that you will figure out a way to make money with it, you will figure out a way to create the partnerships with it. You will figure out all the back office stuff. That is not the hard part. So that's my advice. I love the way that you you have this framework for people and careers, and you break it up into sort of stages of their lives. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I want to steal it. I want you to tell us because I'm going to take what you say. I'm going to copy paste it and use it in my class. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to give you a credit, but I, Thank you. I, I am. But talk about the, the stages of a person's life and, and how they should approach their career. Yes. So I, as a headhunter, I look at resumes all day, every day. I'm interviewing people all day, every day, and have been for the past 15 or so years. So what I've seen is that there are typically four stages to your career that mirror, in many ways, the four stages of your college experience. You've got a freshman slash orientation decade. If you think about your career as plus or minus 40 years, circle 25, plus or minus two or three years, Circle 65 plus or minus two or three years. You got these 40 years. So the freshman decade, like freshman year of college, is all about getting oriented to your new environment, surviving the transition, settling in, figuring it all out at a macro level. You can experiment like you do in college. Hey, I'm a botany major. Psych, I'm a poli-sci major. You can do that in your career. You can take great risk. There's not really a penalty. Your sophomore decade, the next 10 years, primarily your 30s, are all about declaring your major and paying your dues. Now you're saying, I'm not a botany major, I'm a policy major. Well, now you got to take the core curriculum in your major and start paying your dues. Most people want to skip this step because they figure out, well, if I declare poli-sci, I want to do advanced European geopolitical warfare <laughs> seminar. Nah, bruh, you got to go through intro to poli-sci first to even understand how the EU operates, Okay. So in your career, it's the same thing. You've got to pay your dues, and you have to declare your major to the world. I am this. I'm a finance person. I'm a professor. I'm a musician. I'm an entrepreneur. Your junior decade, the decade I'm in, is your achievement decade. Like college, you start getting Phi Beta Kappa. You start getting Golden Key. you got a sense of whether you're Magna or Summa or Cum or Thank You Laude by your junior year. In your junior decade, you pretty much have a sense, this is what I do. I'm trying to find the best version of it. I'm putting some toppings on my beautiful cake I've built. Uh, but it's really about getting those achievements and getting to the highest heights you can in your career as a leader. And then your senior decade is really about your capstone experience. You're on boards. You're mentoring uh, it's kind of like your senior year in college where you take the first semester seriously and the second half, you're kind of like, you know what? I just got into a great grad school or I've got this job offer. I can kind of coast a little bit, but you're still active in extracurriculars. You're still part of the university community. Your senior decade in your career is your, is primarily where people start giving back philanthropically on boards, uh, community service. They have put together this body of work over the previous 30 years. You know, and they're and they're really kind of getting to the end of their career narrative. Now, some people would say that many people are going to extend that well beyond like you do, like friends of mine at Howard went there for five years because they didn't want to graduate. Uh, some people who have jobs that they really, truly love uh, will do it forever. Uh, politicians, uh, broadcasters, actors, actresses, they go as long as possible. There is no retirement. But in general, those four stages provide a blueprint for how you should think about your career. You should be experimenting in your freshman year. You should be paying your dues in your sophomore decade, rather. Your junior decade, let's get to those achievements. In your senior decade, let's make sure we are giving all of that wisdom back to those young folks coming up through those prior decades. Wow, wow. Hey, I want you to drop some wisdom on us in the two-minute drill now, Rory. 
This is the last tweet you have to humanity. Mm. If you had a final message, and you know, I'll give you the extra characters from Mr. Jack Dorsey. So you got the extra characters now, about 220. What would be the final message from you to the world? Everything I did came from a place of love. And if I have loved you, love someone else in return. Mm. Man, you mess around getting James Baldwin <laughs> on us, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Say dogs. All right, all right, all right. Here we go. What is the name of the mandatory course? So let's say that you are the dean of the universe and every college student in the world has to take a mandatory class and you're going to give us the title of that class. What would the title of that course that every college student in the world would take? Understanding your country from another's perspective. Hmm. See, that's a whole other episode. I'm mm-hmm. gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna let that be. Here, here's the, here's the last one. What is the title of the book that you have not written? Hmm. You got some good questions, man. <laughs> Integrity trumps everything. Mm. Put that on a billboard. Throw it on Instagram. It is everything. And mm. no matter how high or low you go in the world, that is the indispensable competency, behavior, or trait that you will use to survive. I have lived this. If I did not have integrity, I do not know where I would be in my career. My intellect was not sufficient. My talent was not sufficient. My relationships did not prove to be as durable. My integrity is what has gotten me this far. Mm. Roy, man. Thank you so much for joining the tribe, dropping so many gems of wisdom. Tell us how we can find you out there on the Internet, World Wide Web, from your podcast to your social media platform. All of my handles are at Protege Podcast. And so that's Facebook, that's Instagram, that's Twitter. You can find me. Please friend me on LinkedIn. I love building uh, relationships and networks via LinkedIn. You can find all of my episodes of my podcast at ProtegePodcast.com. And if you're a hiring manager looking for extraordinary talent, you can find us at ProtegeSearch.com. And I got to say, DKR, Coach Roberts, I love what you are doing, man. I love the platform you have built. You are touching so many lives at such a critical period in people's lives. I admire your your energy level, and I admire your your focus, man, and the wisdom you're sharing with uh, many of these students, these athletes, and these student athletes all around the world. Roy, I appreciate it. I learned from watching the best. Thanks so much for joining the tribe, man. We appreciate it. Thank you, sir. God bless. Thank you. All right, Tribe, thank you so much. And I mean that. Thank you for listening to today's show. For show notes and to get goodies to all of the links from the show, visit a tribe called yes.com. That's a tribe called yes.com. And I have one ask for you. If you like the show, give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. It would really help us to spread the gospel of the tribe. And finally, special thanks to Samantha Skinner and Jacob Weiss, our co-producers and partners in crime, for serving up incredible episodes every single week from the University of Texas. Now go out there this week 
slay some dragons, and keep saying yes. Yes. 